Well, if you remember, we're in a series through Nehemiah. We're working our way through what we've called 4D praying. That's praying in four directions. And as we get started today, I want to bring an illustration that I think is... I'm going to bring actually three of them. Because it's going to, they're going to work to kind of get our minds leashed to where we're going today in this sermon. We all remember and probably have heard the illustration of the little boy who's being disciplined by his mom in church. Now, if you're a parent, you know you've done this. Matthew didn't mention this, but one of the reasons that we want to encourage parents to take advantage of our excellent nursery and children's ministry is, let's be honest, everybody look at me that's a parent. I have four kids. And I could not focus on the sermon when I was trying to keep my children quiet. So we've got this mom in this church and she's trying to discipline her little boy. He's not standing still. He's standing up in the pew. His mom keeps saying, sit down. He would sit down for a few minutes and then he'd get back up. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. She'd say again, I said, sit down. Well, this happened several times. And the little boy stood up and he just would not sit down. So his mother, aggravated, puts her hand on the top of his head and pushes him down. And the little boy sat fuming and he looked at his mom and he said these words, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. Now some of you can really identify either from the parent's position or the children's position. But we are naturally rebellious. Amen? You could say that. And while we might do what we're told, sometimes inside we bristle. But the working of the Holy Spirit... Now listen, this is what the Spirit of God's doing. The working of the Spirit, Christian brother and sister, this is only true of you. If you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, listen, you don't know this. You can't experience this. The working of the Spirit of God is bringing your heart into alignment with God's commands. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you can try to live the commands of God. There's lots of secular institutions that still post the Ten Commandments. But if you don't have the Spirit of God inside of you, you have no power, you have no change of heart, you have no inner disposition to be able to want and be able to do God's will. Well, we're looking at the final direction of prayer today, and it's going to move us into an in-depth look at the, the fruit of repentance that God creates in us. And when we are repentant, and see if you can identify with this, when you are repentant, there's a rededication to love God. You ever come through some time where God finally opens your eyes and you can see the sin that you've been in and He opens your eyes and you hate that sin, that's a working of the Holy Spirit. That's an evidence that you are a believer. And when you hate that sin, He begins to help you to confess that sin. And when you confess that sin, He brings in a new commitment to Him, a new dedication to Him. So here would be the second illustration. Let me ask you a question today for those who are married, if you could rewind your life, now listen, you you answer this married couples, if you could rewind your life, knowing all that you know now, 
Would you marry the person that you did? I see couples looking at each other. There is one couple that I asked that question of just a little while ago. And without hesitation, he said yes. And with a lot of hesitation, she said yes. That was a joke. I mean, that really did happen, but they were being funny. They love each other. You know, I've had the privilege of officiating a few marriage rededication ceremonies. Those are really fun. But never like the one that I did last November. You see, the one that I did last November November was different than any wedding that I've ever officiated before. And I've done a lot of weddings. This wedding was a couple who had gotten married, had two children, and divorced. Yet they stayed single in their divorce. And after a couple years went by, they began to look at each other and say, Why did we get divorced? Let's get married again. And so we redid, we, we married them again. They were married for the second time to the same people. That was pretty exciting for me to be able to do. So let me ask you, have you ever given up on something? Now answer that honestly. Think, think for a moment. Have you ever given up on something? You know, I have some good friends who gave up on the Eagles last year, three games in. They're smart. They're some of my favorite friends. They didn't quite swing to the Cowboys, but they're, they gave up at least on the Eagles. I'm for anybody that does that. Maybe you've given up on a job. Maybe you've given up on a church. Maybe you've given up on a relationship. Maybe yourself, you've given up on yourself. Listen, maybe you've even given up on God. I know people that have. Have you ever given up, though, on a city? Have you ever given up on a city? If you have, then you now can identify with Nehemiah. And now we're starting to get back into Nehemiah. I'm going to tell you one, this is the third illustration of what we're doing today. Listen, this is going to probably make the most sense. You're going to tie in the other three. When I was in 10th grade, I took geometry in high school. Math, science, I'm very weak in those. About halfway through the year in geometry, I had a grade that was hovering right at the failing mark. See, I didn't pay attention in the first half of, or the first third of geometry. And if you don't pay attention in the first part of geometry and everything begins to build on top of it, you can't get the rest of it. I had to literally go back. My teacher helped me. I went back all the way to the beginning and had to learn to master the very rudiments and the very foundation of geometry. Once I did that, the rest of it began to make sense and I was able to get my grade up. This is what we're doing today. We're going to go all the way back to Nehemiah. We're going to go back to chapter 1. I'm going to bring you in fast-forward motion through Nehemiah. We've got to gain some momentum to get into this fourth direction of praying. If you've ever given up on a city, then you know Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. Here's their cry of their hearts. The remnant there in Jerusalem. These are the people that are left in Jerusalem. In the province who had survived the exile, the people that had survived Babylon crushing them and deporting most of them. 
And then Persia now owning them. The people that had survived the exile, they are in great trouble and shame. Can you identify? The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. They had given up on their city. Now listen, God is in the rebuilding business. And he rebuilds lives, he rebuilds marriages, he rebuilds families, he reinvigorates hope. And he can even rebuild a city. And he's rebuilding Jerusalem. And he's going to restore his people. See, he led his people to rebuild the city's wall, making them safe from their enemies. But listen, it's not just a wall to hide behind. That's just not why you built a wall. That's not the only reason. That was was a reason. But it was a wall that God had given a name to. The wall was named salvation. You ever named your fence around your house? Listen, God named the wall salvation. The wall was a symbol that their God had saved them, that He was dwelling with them, that He was in their midst, and that He was bringing His glory to the nations through them. And then they repaired the gates. So they are repairing the wall, and now they're repairing the gates. You see, walls keep the wrong people out. When I was in Haiti, when I was in Cap Haitia on a two-week mission trip years ago, If you had the money, you built a wall because constantly criminals would try to break in and steal everything in your home. They built a high wall and they put glass and the mortar all the way around the top of the wall to try to keep people out. And that wasn't enough either. They had dogs protecting guard dogs that would patrol all night. Listen, walls keep the wrong people out. But listen, gates let the right people in. You got that, right? Walls keep the wrong people out, but gates let the right people in. You came into a city or you left a city through the gates. Gates do something for a city. They build community. They create the way to go out and do God's work. Did you hear that? See, gates let the right people in. Those who are going to worship God. You let, are you letting the right people into your lives? Are you letting the right counselors into your marriage? See, gates let the right people in, but listen, they do something else. They let us out into the city. They let us out into the world to do God's work. If if all you did was come to church and your Christian faith started when you walked in these doors and you put it back down when you leave these doors, listen, you are absolutely ineffective for God. Gates function to let the right people in and to get God's people out to do God's work. So Nehemiah chapter 3 gives us a tour around the wall. And you can see it in this chart and this map on the side screens. He starts with the sheep gate. If you remember, the sheep gate leads to the cross. It's where they would lead the gate, the, the sheep to the temple to be sacrificed. The sheep gate leads to the gate of Calvary where Jesus died for our sins. It's the, it's the gate where you can be saved. Listen, if you're going to have a wall of salvation, you've got, to, you, you've got to come to Christ. Now listen, look at me for just a moment because this is so important. If you've not yet come to Christ... He has not built a wall of salvation around you. 
And if you're not in Christ with a wall of salvation around you, then, then what he called the gates, he called the gates praise. You can't praise God. You can come and you can say amen when it's the right time and you can say hallelujah at the right time, but your heart can't praise God. Your lips move, your heart doesn't. It starts with the sheep gate. If you want your life rebuilt, you got to get back to the sheep gate. you got to get back to the cross where the gospel's power, the promise of God to rebuild lives issues forth. You walk around the, the wall, though, then you come to the fish gate. That was a gate where the fishermen brought the fish for the market. That's where we begin to testify to what Jesus has done for us. We become fishers of men and women, those who disciple others in the faith. And then you walk around the wall, you get to the old gate, or some of your King James, I think in New American Standard, calls it the gate of Yashanah. That's where we begin to ground our lives on the wisdom, the ancient knowledge of the Word of God. And then you get downhill. It's all downhill from the old gate to the valley gate. Long, it's like 1,800 feet long. Because it's the gate of trials. The valley gate is down deep. It's the gate of trials. It's where we have to learn to trust God and our faith is exercised through those difficulties that come in. And listen, those difficulties, here's what they do. Take your tube of toothpaste this evening and squeeze it. And watch the toothpaste come out. Now you know what trials do. It's what God uses to squeeze our hearts and what comes out of our mouths and what comes out of our lives and our behavior. That's what was in our heart. We just don't see it. So when you get to a trial and all of a sudden you fall on your face and you cry out to God and you say, God, you are great and I will not lay charges of wrongdoing at your feet. Listen, God's squeezing your heart and what's coming out of it is glorifying to Him. But if you go to a trial, you go through a trial tomorrow morning and you rail against God and you're angry against God and you say, God, you always do this to me. Listen, he's squeezing you. He's seeing, he's showing you what's coming out of your heart so that you can get to the next gate, which is the dung gate. That's where they took the, the trash out of the city down into the valley of Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom and burned it. That's the valley where Jesus said, this is Gehenna, this is what it's like, this is what hell is like, it's perpetually burning. When God forces the impurities to the surface, to the valley gate, you get them to the dung gate. It's the gate of confession. Lord, you take them. I don't want this stuff in my life anymore. And when you get to the dung gate and you confess, listen, here's what God's going to do to you. He's going to take you right to the fountain gate. It's the very next gate. That's the gate of the Holy Spirit. The only thing keeping the Holy Spirit from filling you even more, Christian, is sin and unbelief. You get that junk out of your heart through the dung gate. Here comes the Spirit of God saying, I was waiting for this. I want to fill you with joy. I want to fill you with power. I want to fill you with purpose. And He's going to take you next to the water gate. That's what He's going to fill you in. We go to gas stations and get gas for our vehicles. The Holy Spirit goes to the water gate and gets the Word of God pumping into your heart and into your mind so that you believe God's Word and you live by it. And you get to the water gate, and you got to get there, Christian brother and sister, because guess what? What's coming is the horse gate. That's the gate of spiritual warfare. You've got to have the Word of God sharper than a two-edged sword. You've got to know God's Word if you're going to be able to survive battle with spiritual forces. 
And he's going to move us to the east gate. And the east gate is where the gate through which our Lord and Savior is going to return. It's the gate of longing. Listen, you go through trials. I just heard somebody tell me that this week. You go through enough trials and you can't wait. Lord, I cannot wait till when you bring me home to be with you. That's part of the purpose of the valley gate, is to get us ready for eternity. Sort of loosen the grip of the world and the pleasures of the world on our hearts. But when you get to the east gate, it's the gate where I cannot wait for Jesus to come back. I am looking forward to His return. And I'm going to do everything that I need to do to hasten God's return. The Bible says, the Bible says He's not coming back till all the earth hears the gospel. Well, church, listen up. We've got to get the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And when He does return, He's going to judge all the nations. And we're going to all appear, every human being that's ever lived and is living at the time of His return, they're all going to appear before the final gate, the muster gate. M-U-S-T-E-R. That's where in the military they muster up, they get in formation, they get inspected. This is the muster gate. And all of God's people, those who made it to the sheep gate and put their faith in Jesus and the gospel power filled their hearts and the Spirit of God is dwelling in them, they're going to receive, better listen, they're going to receive commendation. But when you stand before Jesus and you rejected the Son of God, you would not put your faith into Jesus, you will not receive commendation. The Bible says you will be condemned. You will receive condemnation. Listen, that's the entire story of the Gospel in chapter 3 of Nehemiah. All those gates represent the Gospel. But they're surrounded by enemies. They're in Jerusalem, they're surrounded by enemies, they've got Sanballat to the north, they've got Tobiah to the east, they've got Geshem to the south and to the west, they've got Satan, listen, these are all symbolic, they've got Satan, they've got the flesh, and they've got the world, and all three of those enemies are trying to discourage God's people from building the wall of their salvation strong. And yet the wall was completed and the gates were repaired. And again, we remember our victorious Savior. He's the author, listen, and the perfecter of our faith. So let's take a time out. You ready? And you know what I'm doing? Some of us are failing geometry. Some of us are failing Nehemiah. We're not getting it. And we're looking at 4D praying, 4 direction praying, and we're going to get to it. We're going to, we're going to look at it again. I'm going to briefly bring you through the first three. We're going to hit the fourth. We're going to finish it the next time we get into Nehemiah. But we've got to go back. I'm getting us back to gain momentum to go forward. If you remember, the gate, the, the walls and the, the wall and the gates were rebuilt, but inside the city, do you remember this? The city was desolate. There were no people living in it. So Nehemiah has got to restore the city. The wall is built, the gates are repaired, but there's nobody in the city. He's got to bring people to the city. And then we recalled the ancient promise of God. Listen, this is how you ought to be praying if you belong to Cornerstone. If this is your church, here's how you ought to be praying. This is how we're praying. Ezekiel 36, we've got God's permission. This is a bold prayer. It's audacious. 
But he says, we can pray it. I will let the house of Israel, the house of Israel now forward to the church. I will let the church ask me to do for them. What, what, what can we ask God to do? Here's what he says. To increase their people like a flock. Pray for more people to come. Why? So that we could be a mega church? So that we could gain a reputation of being successful? Listen, that's not what it is. Look what it says. To ask, to ask God to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices. This is who we're praying for. If you're here, likely you're an answer to prayer. We're praying for people who are ready to lay down on the altar and serve God. They're destined for sacrifice. Like the flock of Jerusalem, or at Jerusalem during her appointed feast, so shall the waste cities, so shall Easton, and Stewartsville, and Phillipsburg, and Regalsville, and Bangor, Penargel, and Wingate. Listen, all of these waste cities, they will be filled with flocks of God's people. Is it for our glory? No, look what we're praying. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Then God's name will be made famous. He's told us to pray this. And we are. You see, the reason we're studying Nehemiah and taking our time through it, yes, I am very aware on number 30, what? You're not looking at your outlines, are you? Which part of this sermon are we? 30 what? Okay, so it's 33. Feels like one, right? All right, maybe not. But we're studying this book and we're taking our time through it. Why? Because we're in the midst of working together. This We're trying to see God undertake this vision among us. Rebuilding a spiritual wall around the east and the Lehigh Valley. That's our vision. If you came to me or to Pastor Matthew or one of our elders and deacons and you asked them, what's, what's this church all about? Well, there's the answer. We're trying to rebuild a spiritual wall around the east end of the Lehigh Valley, that wall of salvation. And we've begun, we built, we bought this church. You're here because this is what we're doing. We're putting a worship center right down in the city of Easton. It looks like an uphill battle. Listen, Easton is mired in darkness. There are drugs. There is prostitution all over the place. There is crime. We, we are above the national average in all of what I just mentioned, including fatherless children Fatherless families. All of those. Easton ranks higher than the nation. The national average. So what changes a community? Aren't you asking that? Do you want to know what changes a city? What changes a town? Here it is. I'm going to tell you. We can see it all through Scripture, and it's all through Nehemiah. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power of God unto salvation. You preach the gospel, and God begins to change lives. Amen? And it's the preaching. Listen, there's more. It's the preaching and... You've got to get that and. And the demonstrating of the gospel. It's the exalting of Jesus Christ that transforms communities. You preach, you teach the gospel. You love people, you bring the gospel to demonstration among them, and you exalt Jesus Christ. He says, you lift me up and I will draw all men to myself. 
So we bought this building that you're sitting in. And we've started this two worship services down in Easton, right here in this city. Why? To exalt Jesus, to preach Jesus, to love people like Jesus, and to bring into this demographic cluster of the city the hope of the gospel. And we call it multi-siding. Now you got to hang on. You ready? I'm almost getting to 4D praying. As some of you are wondering, when am I going to get there? Buying buildings is not the norm for multi-siding. You don't normally buy buildings when you multi-site. Multi-siting is one church that meets in more than one location. It's one board, one budget, one staff. It's one vision, one mission, but it meets in several locations. Normally, what you do is you begin a worship site in a home. Or if you outgrow that home in a fire hall or a theater or you rent an available space. But can you, can you imagine having sister campuses? These worship centers. Now listen, can you dream with me? Can you imagine having these campuses from Pinardial down to Regalsville, from Freemansburg to Stewartsville? Can you imagine having all of these campuses around, all of these worship centers where Jesus is lifted up and the gospel is being preached and these, these, the people that are worshiping there are getting out into their communities and they're demonstrating the gospel. Can you imagine what that would be like? That's our vision. That's what we are trusting God for, not trying to be a megaplex church. Listen, there's churches who are huge, and there's nothing wrong with it. But that's not what we're doing. That's not what we believe God is moving us to do. We're, we're not hoping that the world is going to come to us. Listen, why would the world come to church when the world hates Jesus and anybody that belongs to him? See, church has got it backwards. The gospel call is, friends, listen, believers, you go to the world and you bring the gospel to the people who are lost and dying. You don't put on a lot of great programs hoping you can out-entertain the world. You'll never do it. I tried in youth ministry. I couldn't do it. I had it backwards. And so we're being missional, we're being externally focused, we're saying we got to get to the world, we got to get to our neighbors and those in our jobs and our schools, we got to bring the gospel. We're not about creating another thousand church programs. There's some good ones and there's some necessary ones. We're about gathering here as the people of God, helping each other grow, encouraging each other, and then getting back into the mission field where work and school and neighborhoods and dorm rooms and teams all are are filled with people that need the gospel. That's what we're about. So if you're checking out our church, we hope you're challenged, we hope you're encouraged by the worship, by the preaching, the teaching, the fellowship. But if you call Cornerstone your church, then we're asking you to get on the wall and serve. Get on the wall and serve Jesus to partner with God and to rebuild and make this church strong out in the community. Because Christianity is not a spectator sport, amen? You've got to pick up your cross, deny yourself. You've got to do it daily. You follow hard after Jesus Christ right where you live. 
So friends, help repair, help guard, help watch over our gates, encourage others to come to worship Jesus Christ, but also encourage each other. Let's get out in the world with the good news that Jesus can rebuild anyone's life and help them to walk on what Isaiah says can be streets of peace. So in Nehemiah 8, I'm almost there, we saw the people gather together. And they read the Word of God for hours. How many of you would like me to preach for hours? You are my favorite. The rest of you, I have a lot of grace. But they were there for six hours. And what wimpy Americans we are. I had a guy down the street from our Mark Street campus as I was walking up to church stop me doesn't even go to our church. He goes to a different church downtown here. He stopped me and he said, Listen, Pastor, I just want you to know that any longer than ten minutes in that pulpit, that's too long. I said, Well, maybe you don't want to come to our church then. I didn't really say that. I wanted to, but I was kind. The Lord filled me with the Spirit of God and I said, Okay, I got to go. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that's really the Spirit of God, but... Listen, that's America. You can't preach long. They preached, they read the Word of God for six hours. And they began to be made sorrowful. The Word of God began to do its job. It began to create repentance in them for the ways that they had been living their lives. They had loved their comfort. They wanted their glory more than God's glory in worship. And a lot of them had been friends with, the, with their enemies, friends with with those who were trying to destroy them, partners with them, so that they were in great trouble and shame. So they gathered again, they read the word for six hours, it appears the very next day they gather again. And this time their leaders, the Levites, lead them in prayer. Isn't it significant, by the way, did you know this, that this coming Thursday, May 2nd, is the National Day of Prayer for America? It's an opportunity for all of us to pray for revival, pray for God's outpouring of His Spirit in this nation. Because listen, I'm going to tell you whether you like America or not, if God begins to revive this nation, it will go to the world. We're still the gateway to the world. Let's pray Thursday. Let's ask God to revive us, revive the church, and revive this nation. So the Levites lead them to look up in prayer. Now listen, I'm only a few weeks back now. They look up in prayer and they exalt their awesome, glorious God. And exalting God, if you remember, works like a teeter-totter. You, you exalt God and you will bring your soul into humility. If you exalt yourself, you will think little of God. If you exalt God, you will think little of yourself. That's the way it works. And then they were shifting, the Levites shifted them to looking back in the history of their people. They were re-examining their people's times of unfaithfulness. And listen, if you go home and you do this today, or tomorrow, or this week, and you begin to see the times that you've not been faithful with God, listen, the Levites won't let you do 
anything but this. You find the times you were unfaithful and then you pray that God will open your eyes to show you his fingerprints of mercy because he was all around that unfaithfulness. He was bringing his grace to bear. God is faithful even when we're not. And then the Levites led, this was last week, they lead their people to look in, to look in with confidence in their ever-working God. Remember, through the lens of the gospel, taking responsibility for their sins, yet making their minds captive to the truth of the Word of God. If you look in without doing that, you look in and you find yourself in despair and discouragement and you're ready to give up. I can't do this anymore. Listen, you look in with confidence through the gospel to be responsible then you let truth guard your mind. Well, it's time now for the fourth direction, and it's that future hope. You see, when you look in with that confidence, you, you, gain, you gain hope for the future. God's been faithful in the past. He's faithful even now. He's going to be faithful in the future. It's that future hope that gives aim to the final direction of prayer. And finally, we're here. You ready? You look ahead. We looked up, we looked back, we looked in, now we're looking ahead. We're just following the text. We're following Nehemiah chapter 9. You see, the people of God, listen, you got to hear this. The people of God in Nehemiah's day, they don't want to walk back in that prison of sin. Christian brother and sister, do you? Do you want to be enslaved by sin again? I mean, the very death of Jesus Christ purchased you out of slavery, purchased me out of the bondage of sin. He opened the jail door of sin and he dropped the shackles off our wrists and our feet and he walked us into freedom. He who is free in Christ is free indeed. But you can walk back into that prison. The door can't lock. And you can put shackles back on your wrists. They can't close, but you can live like you're a prisoner of sin. And the people of God in Nehemiah, they don't want to walk back into that prison. They want to live free. They want to stay free from the enslaving power of sin. They want to live ongoing lives of repentance. They want a new beginning that is different than their past. Don't you want that? Listen, you come through a season of repentance. Don't you want a new beginning? Don't you want to finally be able to do a do-over? And say, I don't want to be enslaved to this habit anymore. I don't want to look for my glory anymore. I don't want to care so much for my reputation. I want to be for God's reputation, God's glory, walk in God's freedom that He's given me through the cross. So look at verse 38. We're finally there. It took us a while. Some of you are failing. Jeremiah. I'm pretty funny and punny, and I don't even mean to be. Verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Look what he says, because of all this, this is Ezra the scribe writing, because of all this, Nehemiah 1 through 7 was written by Nehemiah, 
From chapter 7 through 13, it's a different voice, it's a different writing style. Most believe it was Ezra. And Ezra's writing, because of all this, because of God's faithfulness, even when theirs was lacking, look what they do. you got to look at the text. We make... You want to know something pretty cool? That word is we cut. I know we translate it make, but the word in Hebrew is we cut. We cut a firm covenant. See, the word covenant's not actually in the original manuscripts. It's put there because it's assumed that this is a covenant by the words make and sealed document. You see, it was, how, how would you like, I want to do this. I've always wanted to do this at a wedding, by the way, because you're making an oath, you're making a covenant in a marriage. And I have a wedding that I'm doing this coming Friday, and I asked the couple if I could do what I'm about to explain to you, and they won't let me. But you see, back in the ancient Old Testament, you get to see this all the way back to Abraham and God. It was customary, if you're going to make a covenant, you take an animal, you kill it, and then you cut it in two, and you separate the pieces. And if you and I were going to then make an oath that we will not move the boundary lines on our land, because listen, if we've got a boundary marker by a low stone wall, very common back in the Old Testament, and you dig and you find water 30 feet beyond the boundary marker, water was as precious as oil, even more so. It was life and death. There's going to be a tendency for me to move that boundary line when you're not looking and say, hey, thanks for digging that well, that's mine. This created wars and bloodshed. So if you and I were making an oath not to, and making a covenant not to move the boundary lines, we would kill that animal, separate the pieces, and you and I, ring around by witnesses in the community that we live in, we would grab hands and we would walk through those pieces together. And what we were saying is this, if either of us move the boundary lines and break this covenant that we just cut, cut literally with that animal, then what was done to that animal will be done to the one who breaks it. Do you see the power? That's how they ratified, that's how they cut a covenant. Do you remember the old schoolyard oath, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye? Remember that? Well, we use an idiom that I believe developed from this, this ancient custom. And it goes something like this. The star running back was in no hurry to cut a deal. You see, you've got that cutting that's still even today in our language. You've got oath-taking that crossed my heart, hope to die. That's oath-taking, that's understanding the consequences. If you don't honor your promise, you don't honor your covenant. So back to Nehemiah, because of their unfaithfulness, and in view of God's utter faithfulness in dealing with them, here's what they do. They cut a covenant, they make a promise, they write a, an agreement. And look what it says. They make it together. Look at the pronoun, we. Some of you aren't looking. You've got to see these. These, are, these words pop out. They're, you don't make a covenant in the people of God by yourself. You need people around you. You need witnesses. You need support. You need accountability. 
And when you take out a loan, you're entering in a covenant with a bank. When you marry, you're making a covenant with your spouse. You see, in a covenant, there are obligations, there are benefits, there are blessings, and there are conditions. We do that here at Cornerstone. If you want to be a member at Cornerstone, then you need to start by going to membership classes. We have eight classes that you would participate in. And where we explain to you what we believe, our doctrine, what we do as a church, who we are, our vision and our mission, what is the Evangelical Free Church of America. We answer your questions, we get to know you, you get to know us. It's kind of like the pre-marriage counseling that we offer before we do a wedding. And then if you choose, you get through those eight classes. Listen, this is some of you might want to do this. If you get through those eight classes and you want to be a member, you don't have to be. But if you want to be, then we give you a piece of paper, which is a membership covenant. It's called the membership covenant. And there are four membership promises and obligations on that covenant. And we ask you to sign that. Because we are covenanting, we are covenanting, we are agreeing together that we will conduct ourselves and serve together in our church to the glory of God. We've had to take people who have signed the membership covenant and we've had to take membership away. They were in sin and they refused to come out of sin. And this is what we've got in verse 38. We've got a membership covenant of a people who are declaring themselves to live as the people of God and serve God and serve each other. They put it in writing. Listen, this is just like we do today. This isn't so odd, that's so ancient, that it makes no sense. We still do these things. They put it in writing so that it can be a a memorial, a reminder of the seriousness of their promise. Listen, look at it. It's a sealed document, verse 38. Meaning that it's official, it's been notarized, it's been legally binding, and it's signed by 84 men. If you read through chapter 10, Nehemiah starts. 84 men, and these 84 men, look at verse 38. They are our princes, our Levites, and our priests. They're the leaders of the people. They function similarly to the leaders of our own church here. We've got our elders, our deacons, and our pastors. Princes, Levites, and priests. They all serve together. They all represent the people. They all sign their names on this seal. Listen, there's 84 signatures. They're representing thousands of women and children and fathers. And it was personal. It was a promise. It was public. Did you get those three Ps? It was personal. You signed your name. It was a promise. We will uphold this covenant. And it was public. It was done in front of people. Listen, you know what this was? This was a declaration of dependence. See, in America, we like declarations of independence. Not God's people. They're covenantal people. They realize what they're doing. They are making themselves dependent on their God, making themselves dependent with each other. This is a declaration to become dependent. And this wasn't an exercise in spiritual emotion. 
This was rational. This was thought through. This was a rededication of their lives to their God. And it was similar to what Paul moved the church to do in Romans 12. 1. This is this, this is similar language. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Listen, there's been 11 full chapters of incredible theology and what God has done for his people. And he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Here it is. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's rededication language. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, they wrote it down. They made it personal. It was public. And it was a fresh start in God's mercy. And a going forward with biblical support. Let me show you what we're doing here at Cornerstone. By the way, this sermon is just getting us ready to really look at the covenant the next time we look at Nehemiah. It's going to be pretty fun. It's going to be amazing. Four areas that are still relevant to, to us today, and we need to rededicate ourselves to them. So get ready for it. Read ahead. But let me tell you what we're going to do now. We're going to close this service by showing you and reading to you and asking you to participate in a declaration of dependence, a dedication of this building to the Cornerstone Church to be used by God to bring the gospel and the demonstration of the gospel into the city of Easton. We dedicated in early April this building. And we read the words that I'm going to read to you and I'm going to ask you to stand in a moment. And we're going to, I'm going to read it and you read it silently and follow along. And we're going to ask that you, if you will agree to this promise, to this dedication, that at the end of that you will say amen and then you'll make it over to this table before you leave tonight and you will sign your name on it. And we're going to frame this in a part of our church that will be prominent. If you're able to say, yes, this is my church, and I want to be part of this vision of rebuilding a spiritual wall around the east end of the Lehigh Valley, and I'm ready to get to the wall, I realize I have a responsibility to serve and to take the gospel through Cornerstone back into the people of the world that I live with all week, that you'll say amen at the end of this time. Let's stand together. Let me read and you follow along. And at the end of this, if you agree, you will say amen after I do. To all in the city of Easton, its leaders, the surrounding community, and to the principalities and powers on this day in April 2013, the elders and deacons, pastors and staff, members and congregants of Cornerstone Church praise our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father for the work He has done and will continue to do at this facility. The Lord is faithful and He alone is worthy of our praise. As we stand in this place, we hereby dedicate this building to the kingdom of God, to He who is the beginning and the end, for whom all things are created. To he who created the heavens and the earth, the seas and all that is in them, we dedicate this building to be used as a gathering place for teaching, training, thanksgiving, and worship to the one true God. 
We dedicate this building to be a place of prayer for the spiritual welfare of the people of the city, that all who enter and exit through its doors would know the steadfast love of the Lord. And we dedicate ourselves to following after the Lord with our whole heart and mind, to be God's vessels to carry His love and truth into the community. We will take from here by the power of the Holy Spirit the message of forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and awesome joy through faith in the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ alone. His perfect life, death, and resurrection that overcame sin and death for the sake of the world. May all who enter here experience the righteousness, mercy, deliverance, compassion, grace, and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the name of Jesus Christ be ever magnified by those who worship here. And may God alone receive all the glory for the work He accomplishes within these walls. In the name and under the authority of Jesus Christ, Amen. Can you say Amen? Are you standing with us and building a spiritual wall around the east end of the Lehigh Valley? And as we bear the gospel in word and in deed to our, com- our community, exalting the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, our hope for the nations. Listen, when we get back to Nehemiah and we take a close look at their covenant... I believe we're going to see how relevant it is to our own day. I think our lives can change. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for what we're learning. Thank you for what you're doing here at Cornerstone. Thank you for all that you're doing through this church and other churches, Lord, in just amazing ways. You are bringing the hope of the gospel to those who are lost and dying and perishing. Lord, we want that. We ask for that. And we ask that you would be amazing and use us, get us to the wall. Let not one person in this church shirk their duty to serve, to serve you. And may our lives be rededicated to that purpose. We love you. We thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.